Well, good morning, folks, and welcome to the Reorg Primary View, in which Reorg's ACE reporter team highlights issues affecting, impacting, or otherwise relevant to the deleveraged finance, direct lending, high-yield distressed debt, and covenant markets. I'm James Holloway, Reorg's man in the paved-over swamp known as Houston, Texas, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Patrick Fitzgerald, my friend and colleague, with 10 completely compelling minutes on direct lending. Patrick, over to you. Hello, my name is Patrick Fitzgerald, and I'm one of Reorg's reporters based in our New York City office. Today, I'm speaking with Richard J. Schinder about the state of the direct lending environment in the United States. Richard is both founder and managing partner of Theatine Partners, an advisory, an advisory and fiduciary services boutique firm based in Greenwich, Connecticut. He has nearly 30 years of experience as an investment banker, restructuring advisor, and distressed and special situations investor. Richard, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank, thank you, Patrick. It's great to be with you this afternoon. To kick things off, um, what is the state of the direct lending environment in the U.S. at the moment? Has it slowed down quite a bit in comparison to last year? You know, it's it's a really interesting and, and fluid environment. So as you know, my company, Theatine Partners, primary focus is on providing investment banking, restructuring advisory, and special situations financing services. And I've, I've observed our firm's business mix invert over the course of 2022. So for example, last year, I was very active on the capital raising front really throughout the entirety of 2021 and found you know working to raise capital, primarily debt, but not always debt capital on behalf of my clients. I, I found the direct lending environment to be incredibly robust, um, which I think was reflective of, of significant limited partner capital allocations directed at the private credit asset class, as well as historically low absolute rates and credit spreads. You know, it was interesting, notwithstanding you know con concerns that started to emerge about incipient inflation, um, you know, late in the year last year, I'd say the the financing markets in, in private credit remained pretty robust through the end of Q1 of, of this year, 2022, at which time sentiment began to shift, you know, which to be clear, is not to say that the financing markets are, right now are closed, in fact, far from it. But over the last six months or so, direct lenders um, I've seen have become more judicious in originating new exposures to, sec to sectors likely to be challenged by more challenging macroeconomic and, and arguably recessionary conditions. And you've also seen you know, real covenants you know, with teeth um, beginning to reemerge. So while pricing is more expensive, uh, decent companies continue to have access to capital in the debt markets. And I'd say situations remain competitive among competing lenders, you know, which is partly a function of that significant dry powder uh, that I just mentioned, you know, that remains available and was raised for, for these types of opportunities. Um, the other thing I'd say is, is as liquid uh, leverage markets get choppier, the greater certainty of execution that exists uh, within the private credit space and with private credit or direct lending counterparties can create a more favorable competitive dynamic for direct lenders, notwithstanding the fact that even as public market valuations and leverage multiples have compressed and the terms now on offer are less aggressive than perhaps what we've seen in the last several years, um, you know, which was a period during which you know, all manner of underwriting disciplines seem to have left the market, um, capital remains available. 
Okay, interesting. Um, given the explosive growth in private credit as an asset class that occurred following the great financial crisis, are direct lenders adequately prepared to work out problem credits in a distress cycle, would you say? You know, that's a great question. And, and the glib answer, I think, is, um, you know, we're about to find out. So, you know, in that context, I, I gave a presentation in late August this year to the Na National Conference on Public Employee Retirement Systems, uh, which is an industry group comprised of some of the largest um, institutional LPs active in alternative investing. And my presentation was on systemic risk with a focus on the possibility of broader market contagion ensuing from, disrupted, um, from a disrupted private credit marketplace. I noted in that speech that it, there's been explosive growth in private credit since the great financial crisis with AUM dedicated uh, to the private credit asset class growing from approximately 200 billion in 2008 to over a trillion by early 2021. And this growth coincided with a period of declining interest rates, you know, pretty benign capital markets conditions and, and low default rates. Um, on top of that, unlike regulated commercial lenders, private debt general partners, just like the GPs of other alternative asset class funds, like private equity, real estate, and hedge funds, are structurally disincentivized from investing in risk management infrastructure as it creates a drag on fund returns and on, on the carried interest that they earn on those funds. So you've got a bit of a classic black swan dynamic. Nearly all of the growth in private credit has occurred during a period when its durability really hasn't been tested. And we may be, again, about to find out how well-equipped these firms are as conditions begin to change. You know, part of the challenge, um, you know, sort of going from the macro to the micro, part of the challenge in, in working out private credit is inherent in its structure. It's, you know, by definition, it's private, illiquid, narrowly held. You know, most direct loans, as you know, are originated in either a bilateral or small club format, you know, to a middle market company whose equity is also privately held. So the ease of exiting a position when a when a hold, when a debt holder faces, you know, a sell or work or workout decision isn't the same as it might be with a high yield bond or a widely held and traded leveraged loan. So if there's no exit at an acceptable price, the fund has to work out the position. And then you know you sort of add to that for middle market borrowers, the the workout toolkit tends to be narrower because those companies of that size and breadth typically don't have the multiplicity of capital markets options that larger companies do. So the options that, that lenders tend to face revolve around some combination of an amendment, a refinancing or a sale. And the first two perhaps um, might require some measure of, of financial sponsor support. Of course, in a difficult macroeconomic environment, the actionability of these strategies you know, may be suspect, which is why direct lenders should always be underwriting to a potential change of control, meaning a loan to own whenever they originate an illiquid direct loan as it may end up being, um, owning the company may end up being the best of several bad options. Okay, that seems like a next nice segue into my next question, which is that I'm wondering, wondering if you can expand on what the outsource workout model is. Uh, its evolution and perhaps its relevance to the distress cycle that many seem to be eyeing at the first half of 2023. Um, if direct lenders aren't equipped to handle the outsource workout model, how can it be done, do you think? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and I, I think, you know, this is something I've given a lot of thought to given, you know, my own professional experience as a restructuring advisor and as a distressed investor. So in any workout, a lender will typically retain some level of outside help at a minimum, you know, outside finance or bankruptcy counsel. You know, many large alternative or non-regulated credit platforms employ workout risk management and underwriting personnel who are experienced in resolving special assets, you know, but small firms may not have dedicated and or experienced uh, professionals um, in-house to deal with credits that are in default. You know, some, some firms maintain a model whereby, you know, originators or business development folks are the ones responsible for working out their own problem credits, you know, and, and these situations when, when, a, when a borrower is in default, requires significant attention in order to preserve asset value. And it's essential that the individual or the teams internally who are responsible for it have the bandwidth and the expertise to work through such situations effectively. So outsourced workout isn't necessarily a unique concept as a, you know, the retention of outside legal consulting or, or financial assistance can be thought of as, you know, all of those can be thought of as forms of outsourcing. But I think as a holistic life cycle approach to obtaining you know, or procuring the bandwidth and expertise necessary to resolve distressed situations in a value-maximizing way and keeping incentives aligned, you know, that is a new twist. And it, it needn't be a one-size-fits-all approach or look the same from one deal to the next. I mean, I'd say in general, the idea is for a lender to contract with a third party for the requisite expertise and have that firm or firms play a larger role than might be typical for an outside advisor, an outside advisor in a larger cap situation where, where the um, the investing principles have more active, direct involvement. So, for example, here at, at Theatine, we've had clients where, for us, the model would, might work roughly as, as follows. We're retained by a secured lender in a workout. We advise the lender as the company works through. That playbook I just mentioned, if, if ultimately there's an amendment, a refinancing, or a sale, the role may conclude having you know, effectively um, resulted in having been a more traditional, albeit higher touch, advisory engagement, perhaps incorporating an incentive fee structure um, in the compensation for a successful outcome. But given the intensity of, of the work um, you know, in, in that sort of um, structure, to the extent the situation evolves in a direction whereby a change of control or a loan to own, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, type of outcome emerges, in that case, the, the outside financial advisor is then well positioned to move into more of a principal role as a board director or in some other fiduciary position and drive recovery or value creation from that from that seat. So that's why I, I think of it as, as principal advisory, even though that sounds like an oxymoron. And it's really a, a life cycle approach. The, the idea isn't just to provide a fee for service disconnected from the ultimate outcome, but to align the advisor with the lender's interests, and in the event a loan becomes a control or some other equity position in the borrower, continue to drive outcomes with the benefit of that advisor's continuous involvement in, you know, in the name. You know, originator, you know, it's important to, to recognize originators and other non-workout personnel have day jobs at their firms, and, and what's not to like about, um, in the ideal case, obtaining a superior outcome that doesn't incur the opportunity cost of of keeping the, you know, the deal team distracted from their primary responsibilities. Okay, uh, lastly, how do you think the distress cycle that may very well be upon us unfolds? 
what does it look like and how might it be distinct from previous cycles? So my, uh, my crystal ball is, is pretty murky, but I, I do think this cycle looks different from the last several that, that we veterans have seen. So I guess looking back at the last cycle with the great financial crisis, you know, unlike uh, 2008, you know, that was a, a circumstance fueled by asset class contagion and it was ultimately, you know, ended or truncated and, and uh, you know, arguably cured by liquidity. Um, I argue this cycle is one that's being caused in part by liquidity or, or excess liquidity due to, you know, the COVID response and the inflation that it's given rise to. So what I think that means for the restructuring environment is that larger companies um, that have available that broader capital markets playbook I mentioned will have liability management and other financial product solutions available as markets generally remain open, at least initially. But ultimately, inflation and a weakening economy exacerbated by lingering COVID-19 effects, you know, particularly around supply chain, and the impact of reshoring along with you know, misdirected public policy decisions will probably first, and, and we're already seeing this, I'd argue, hit the first hit the middle market space where companies have a narrower range of financial and strategic options. Um, these companies are the ones that are that are largely financed by private lenders with limited workout experience, workout experiences I was talking about a moment ago. You know, so a cycle that's fueled more by the real economy and starting with smaller companies, I think risk contagion spread, ultimately spreading into larger cap names as, as higher interest rates, declining, earling, declining earnings, um, you know, uh, collapsing interest coverage and, and volatility, volatile equi equity markets start to shrink lenders and other creditors' margin of safety. So what may begin is, as more of a middle market cycle could then widen out into, into more broad scale distress uh, which I expect, you know, to to really kick in by the back half of, of next year. So I think 2023 and, and 2024 should be very active years for the restructuring and distressed investing communities. I think the wild card, though, is the length of the cycle. So, you know, as I just mentioned, we're we're here in part due to excess liquidity and, and the Fed's actions. So the bullets that the Fed fired back in, in 2008 to address the great financial crisis really aren't available um, in the chamber this time around. So if you think about it, a, a good old fashioned recession, which you know I think is really a double dip as we've effectively just had one with two negative quarters of GDP followed by a brief nose above sea level uh, before turning down again, that could extend out for several quarters and will also be informed and contextualized by, by global economic conditions and, and geopolitical events which I'd argue seem to have more downside than upside. And while there isn't a near-term maturity wall following this lower for longer credit environment that's prevailed for the last dozen years, I think you know the longer the recession, the closer we get to the wall that does exist, which starts to sort of jump up for high yield and, and leverage loans in that you know, 2024, 2025 timeframe. So I think as, as we, we work through this recession, and companies with 2025 maturities are looking, you know, to be in the market to refinance or sell themselves. You know, that's probably a 2024 event, and you start to see how this cycle could elongate. So, in some ways, I think this cycle could look a little bit like the cycle we had in the early 2000s, albeit for very different reasons, um, where we have an active restructuring market concurrent 
you know, with a healing economy um, as we work our way, you know, beyond 2024. But that's, uh, as I said, the crystal ball is murky, and that's that's just one man's opinion. All right. Well, some very interesting and timely insights. Richard Schinder, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. Have a great day. You too.